Hello and welcome to a special edition of Mostly Weather. I'm Claire Nazir. Friday the 31st of July 2020 marks the release of the State of the UK Climate 2019 report. It's the sixth in the series. The report is led by the Met Office with four other partners. National Oceanography Centre in Southampton, Poznan University of Life Sciences in Poland, the Museum of Zoology at the University of Cambridge and the Woodland Trust. In this programme, we'll be talking to Dr Mark McCarthy, head of the Met Office National Climate Information Centre and one of the main authors. He highlights some of the main findings and talks about the different data sets that are used to compile this report. We also chat to Woodland Trust CEO Darren Moorcroft. But first, I caught up with Professor Liz Bentley, CEO of the Royal Meteorological Society. I began by asking her why this report is so important. It's really important that we capture that snapshot of what has happened in the UK, both for that previous year, but also to look back at that kind of recent decade and any trends and changes that we've seen. It's really important that we capture that and that it's published. And that's where the Royal Met Society has kind of come into this in that this report now gets published annually in one of our journals at the Royal Met Society. So the International Journal of Climatology. So it's really important not only that that report is written, but it's reviewed, it's then published in a scientific journal other scientists can then refer to it and reference it in their own science work which was being done before but it's got a much more formal process to it and it reaches a much wider audience anybody can read them it's accessible to anybody and it has that international reach because it's published in an international journal so it really does put it up there as a, as a real marker as information important information that, that is used quite widely then by other people And the data sets go back to the 1800s, which is absolutely incredible. Do you think we have too much information nowadays? Because I've read the report and there's a huge amount of data which goes into this. And you're trying to glean the headlines. And there are so many. Do you think there are more headlines than there were even 10, 15, 20 years ago? Is there too much information there? For me, no, there's never enough information when it comes to the weather. It looks into detail across the board. So you'll have different audiences who will take different things from it. Some will want to look at some of the events that happened during that particular year and want to maybe take a closer look. So, you know, the heat wave event that happened in the summer of 2019 and the record breaking temperatures and people will refer to that particular event and, and want to kind of dig down into the detail of that. Others will be more interested in rainfall or flooding events that have happened so people will delve into the bits of information that are relevant and important to them and it's really key that we get all that information in one place in one report and that's what this report does and and achieves very successfully so 2019 would you say there were any surprises in the report I guess surprise is probably not the word I would use because these things happened. They were reported in the news. So there's nothing new in there that that it was telling me. What is new to this report this year is the phenology report. So basically being able to look at how plants and animals have responded to the weather and climate. So that will be quite new and it's been quite incisive to have a look at that. So that was not a surprise, but certainly a new area to look at. The word I might use actually is concerning. So we've seen some record breaking events in 2019. If you just focus in on temperature, you know, we had our highest ever temperature ever recorded in July last year. We saw our highest ever winter temperature recorded in February, our highest ever minimum temperature recorded in February, the highest February temperature. So, and they're all edging for those high temperature records. We haven't seen any of the lower temperature records being broken in 2019. So that's more concerning for me is that 
trend that we're seeing, not in just 2019, but over that last decade of that warming that we're seeing here in the UK as we're experiencing right around the world. From your experience working in weather meteorology and climatology over the last few decades, would you say more people are now going into climatology than meteorology? That seems to be a, a trend towards analysing data on a longer scale rather than the imminent? There's definitely a trend to people moving into climate services. That's been a boom area in the last kind of few years, maybe last decade. So, you know, for you and I, it was very much weather service providers. You know, as I was coming into the career 20, 25 years ago, we didn't really think about providing services in climate so much, but that's definitely been a growth area. As the understanding and importance of climate change has certainly grown over that last kind of two or three decades, the information that we have, the models that we have to be able to predict further into the future and I think it's important when we talk about this report it isn't trying to provide predictions for the future it's really looking at trends of things that have actually happened here in the UK so we're not trying to kind of predict from that what's going to happen in 30 years time this is on our doorstep now what is happening what we're seeing changing in our climate and that's why again it, it is such an important report for us to have to have that information you know to hand and being published. And it goes hand in hand with the rapid attribution studies, which have really helped the messaging when it comes to climate change, particularly for people who are at the forefront and, and talking about this, journalists in particular, and people like ourselves, where we have much more confidence in saying, yes, there is an absolute direct correlation between these high temperatures, which we've been reporting, and climate change. Yeah, so attribution is an area of climate science that has been, I think, a step change. Uh, it's provided us with, with relatively real-time information about extreme events that have happened and whether we can attribute that to climate change or not, or whether the likelihood of those events are, are more frequent or more severe because of climate change. We couldn't do that four or five years ago. You know, we were stuck in this kind of doldrum of just having to say, you know, we can't attribute this one event to climate change. We were in much better position nowadays to be able to attribute not everything, but you know, everything is down to climate change, but particular events we've much more confidence to be able to you know the science is there to talk with much more confidence about how our climate is changing just finally do you think this document can really affect change so I guess the report on its own probably doesn't lead to a significant change. It's, it's a way of collating all that information in one place. It's then how the report is used. So it's picked up by other scientists who you know, reference it in their own papers that are maybe looking at climate mitigation or climate adaptation, or even just looking at past weather events and doing an analysis of that. It's picked up by government, it's picked up by businesses, both on kind of national and local scales as well. And that's, I think, where the opportunity for change will come about. So so it's a, a part of that whole process. It's an important part that that data and that information is collated in this report, but it's how it's used that probably leads to the change. Professor Liz Bentley, thank you very much. Dr. Mark McCarthy, this is the sixth state of the climate report. There's a lot of data to analyse. Is that why it comes out sort of halfway through the next year? The report is compiled from the extensive set of observations we have um, from our UK land weather station network. So that's looking at temperature, rainfall, sunshine, wind, snow, etc., uh, which is managed by the Met Office and a number of partner agencies that we 
work with. So this is about putting the most recent year into the context of the most recent decade, reference climate periods, but also linking into the extensive archival records we've got too. So we're looking back at climate across for the UK hundreds of years. So compiling a lot of this information takes a bit of time to sort of verify all of the data and the statistics. Why have there only been six reports so far? It's quite a, a new thing, really. Well, actually monitoring the UK weather and climate and placing these sort of events into our climatological context is something that has occurred in various forms throughout the history of the Met Office, almost from its sort of early days. And what we've done here in producing this particular type of annual report was it just found to be a useful format to help us consolidate some of the wealth of information we have to be able to provide that authoritative and crucially up-to-date assessment. Any big surprises? Well, the, the sort of key highlight um, is 2019 was the 12th warmest year for the UK. And that's in a series from 1884 to present. But perhaps arguably the most remarkable aspect were some of the extremes that we saw last year. So the highest winter temperature on record getting to 21.2, but actually numerous places in the country exceeding 20 degrees for the first time during a British winter. Um, and also the highest temperature of any time recorded in the UK at 38.7 at Cambridge Botanic Gardens at the end of July. A couple of other high temperature records, but no low temperature records at all. Phenology, that is a new addition this year uh, and associated with some of those warmer conditions. We're also reporting that this warm year uh, was also seen in leaf records. So the first leafing dates of trees was much earlier in the year and the bare tree dates at the end of the season were also a bit later. So the tree leaf season was extended by almost two weeks. It's amazing really that that record in July at Cambridge Botanic Gardens was smashed. It took a long time, didn't it? Because the previous record was 2003, August the 10th, I believe. Yes, that's right. Even with our changing climate, some of the extremes are by their nature rare coincidences of a number of factors that all have to come into play together at the right time to create some of the most extreme events. So some of these rare events, now when they do occur, they might be nudged that, that sort of bit warmer than they were in the past. So that's why we're seeing a lot more of these high temperature records being broken in recent decades than we did in earlier parts of our climate. So we look at the sort of near coastal sea surface temperatures. So that gives us a useful independent set of observations from the land records that people may be more familiar with. Uh, and actually 2019 was the fourth warmest year in our sea surface temperature series for the UK near coast. Uh, and that's a series that goes back to 1870. So again, quite a, a, a long series. So that's a very notable warming. Um, and we're seeing a very similar rate of warming for both the coastal seas and overland for the UK. Let's now talk about precipitation because even though rainfall was just above average across the UK. It masked some quite extreme weather events, particularly towards the end of the summer and into autumn. 
overall it was a little above average but as is very often the case with rainfall statistics really you can have things balancing out so some drier months earlier in the year were effectively sort of balanced out by wetter conditions uh, for parts of the country particularly through the summer and into the autumn season um, and associated with that there were some really quite significant regional flooding events embedded within that of particular note some severe flooding in South Yorkshire and the neighbouring counties through the autumn with some local records being broken during that event for some locations one of the wettest autumns on record. Is that in line with how the forecast for climate trends is evolving? Well for rainfall it's a bit of a trickier picture so what we are expecting in future climate change that we will on average see wetter winters and drier summers Um, although embedded within that we can still have dry winters and wet summers but the general picture is towards wetter winters and that part of the year Um, but more significant is the fact that we're seeing the warming trends. 2019 as the 12th warmest year is not itself record-breaking but it is clearly part of that broader warming of our climate consistent with our expectations from global climate change. The most recent decade for the UK has been nearly one degree warmer than our 1961 to 1990 reference baseline. And all of the top 10 warmest years have occurred since 2002. So we're seeing these sort of high temperature records occurring disproportionately in the recent decades as a consequence of this. So 2019, Mark, was it a stormy year? Six named storms. One was an ex-hurricane, Lorenzo. The storm naming system uh, has been introduced in recent years, so we don't really have uh, climate records of storm naming because it's sort of based on impacts and forecast impacts. What we do look at are incidences of particularly high wind gusts over the UK, and 2019 doesn't really stand out as being particularly compellingly stormy year compared to recent decades. And indeed, we don't see any sort of compelling trends in storminess um, because that series uh, uh, over decades is sort of dominated by some of the variability in our climate, particularly the North Atlantic climate and our association with the storm tracks. Energy demand and the growing conditions indices, is that something new? No, actually, so within the report, we look at a couple of metrics relating to things called heating degree days, cooling degree days and growing degree days. Uh, And these are indices that are developed to be sort of indicative of the requirement for heating of homes and buildings or air conditioning um, or conditions suitable for plant growth. So heating degree days in 2019 were actually below average. Is that correlated to the fact that sunshine was above average? The heating degree days is derived primarily from the temperature variables um, and it's a measure of when temperatures when and and by how much temperatures fall below particular thresholds at which point you might need to basically turn on your heating in your home so it's particularly sensitive to how cold it gets through the um, winter but also the sort of shoulder autumn and spring seasons my next question obviously is about snow and everybody every year wants a blast of snow and then they want it to go away don't they and i don't really remember 2019 being a notably snowy winter but i It says here in my notes that snow fell quite widely across the UK at the end of January and the start of February. 
yeah, that was the most significant snowfall event probably for 2019 was back at the end of January, start of February. There were a number of impacts from that with snow falling uh, across some low-lying areas, traffic disruption, etc. ensued. Um, but the event itself was not particularly unusual for the time of year being winter in the UK. So overall 2019 was not particularly notably snowy. And uh, One thing that we do see in the statistics, these widespread and substantial snow events have reduced in their number and severity generally since the, the 1960s. So we are seeing a lot fewer significant snowfall events occurring. They do still occur and we do still get snowfall during the winter in the UK and we can expect to do so in the future, but it's just less common and less severe than it uh, used to be. I want to talk a little bit about the central England temperature because it's the oldest temperature record in the world. Am I correct in saying that, Mark? It's the longest um, instrumental climate record for anywhere in the world. So as a UK climatologist, we're in a very privileged position, really, for the extent of historical weather observations that we have access to. So the Central England Temperature Series is a data set that was constructed in the mid-20th century by Professor Gordon Manley. Uh, and that series goes from 1659. So these sort of the very early days when a number of philosophers and scientists of the 17th century, the Enlightenment, were starting to experiment with and use the early thermoscopes uh, and early thermometers. And I presume, I'm just looking at a map now that shows the trends through decades of that central England temperature. It's a mean annual temperature and there's a certain real sort of sharp rise from around 1975 to where we're at now. Would you say it's a good measure of where, and it's representative of the rest of the UK, or is there a microclimate there which suggests it's only for that part? So the Central England Temperature Series is really valuable for the fact that it provides this multi-century climate record, which is indicative of these long-term climate changes affecting the UK and the warming that we have seen in recent decades is something we're seeing across the UK. So yes, some of the detail within that will differ because it's not the Central England Temperature Series is not reflecting the whole of the UK, but the broad scale picture and these broad tre warming trends that we're viewing, that is something that we're seeing from uh, observing sites across the UK and also as we discussed previously within our coastal waters and within other metrics such as uh, leafing dates and degree days, frosts uh, and all of these other metrics that can give us that more comprehensive picture. So what the Central England Temperature Series is really valuable for is just providing that perspective through over 350 years. So we can say that it's most likely that the 21st century so far has been warmer than any equivalent length period in the last three and a half centuries. Across the UK obviously you've got a lot of data on the ground stations that measure temperature, humidity, rainfall every day. Are there any outliers? Are there any places or, or spots around the UK which seem to defy the trends which are general across Britain? Some of the, the key trends that uh, we're seeing Although there can be some 
regional detail within that. Uh, broadly speaking, say things like the warming trends and trends in um, things like uh, temperature related metrics like frosts and growing degree days. There are regional differences, but the broad picture is similar across the whole of the UK. So we're seeing these, these changes everywhere. One area where there are some regional differences in rainfall trends, for example, where some of the most significant trends we're seeing over parts of Scotland and the western sides of the country. So we can see a bit more detail when we look at rainfall. But again, as we discussed previously, when we sort of start looking at these large scale pictures, we can average out some of the details. So that's why we provide a sort of comprehensive set of data so that where particular individuals or, or organizations may have particular areas of interest. There are ways in which people can drill down into much more detail in these metrics. Um, but generally, we, we are looking at this national picture, really, uh, and we are seeing changes across the whole country. Finally, how's 2020 shaping up? It's July. We've done this interview, I think it's the 22nd of July today. So we're pretty much past halfway through the year. What a strange year it's been. But weather-wise, We've been stuck in two particular patterns that I can remember, hot and dry, and now wet and not so hot. <laughs> we um, spend our time looking backwards, uh, and so we spend a lot of time analysing the data and the statistics for the previous year, but certainly the current events keep us on our toes as well. So 2020 is itself shaping up to being a really interesting year for weather and climate in the UK. Already this year, we have seen a number of uh, significant climate records, uh, most notably the exceptional rainfall in February of this year, torrential downpours and significant flooding, uh, resulting from a succession, uh, again, of named storms that, that particular month. But following on from that, we saw uh, sort of record-breaking sunshine and clear skies and for some regions record dry weather during the spring in sharp contrast to, to late winter and the end of winter and the year so far for the the first half of the year has been although july where we are at the moment has generally been a bit cooler than average most other months this year so far have been warmer than average uh, so actually the year so far is uh, on track to be a warmer than average year but obviously we still have the rest of the year to go. Dr Mark McCarthy. I'm finally joined by Darren Moorcroft, CEO of the Woodland Trust, whose team cover a vast area of woodlands and forests in the UK. We're fortunate to have over a thousand woodlands across the UK and a team of uh, both foresters and conservationists working to protect, restore and create for the future. But so this state of the climate report basically has a phenology section and I've just listed a few things, what the findings of first leaf and, and, and bare tree. Some trees respond more quickly than others to climate change impacts like extreme weather in the UK. How important is this report, particularly with the phenology aspect to it? I think this report's incredibly uh, important because it's looking at the climate, but having phenology in it as well is really important because I think what that shows us is how is nature responding to how the weather and how the climate is changing? And in doing so, what we're able to say is, do we have to think about how we change our management 
in order to help nature respond and to fare well because we're in a climate emergency and a nature crisis so we have to put those two things together so the report doing so is really fantastic so in the report it talks in particular about certain types of trees and how they responded to last year's weather now last year's weather we had some very hot conditions and then it turned incredibly wet towards the end of the year the elder showed the greatest shift in both the first leaf which was 11.9 days earlier and bare tree which was 4.3 days later is there a reason for that would you say i think there's elasticity in how our trees you know our native trees are responding and what you see is their ability to respond to climate change is one where you know the big risk at the moment is their ability to adapt at speed isn't there but some of them can adapt a little bit quicker our real challenge is how does this impact on the synchronization with the rest of the food chain so whether it's elder silver birch or species like oak these are incredibly important for nature across the uk as they change how they respond the things that rely on them have to try to change as well and if they can't that can have real implications at the end of the year we saw the worst flooding some farms particularly across central and eastern areas of england were pretty much decimated by being underwater for weeks, if not months. How do trees cope with that type of flooding? Where I live, roots have been laid bare as sediment has been washed away, and that's not great for the health of of these trees, is it? It's not. The removal of, of the soil from around the roots is incredibly damaging for a tree. They are resilient uh, organisms. They are fortunate in terms of if they're well-established, their roots can go deep and they can withstand an awful lot uh, of stress. But particularly if we're thinking about creating new woodlands, that stress is magnified because they don't have the root system and they don't have the ability to withstand the types of events that we've seen. Trees are probably nature's most powerful tool in tackling climate change, but they're also nature's um, examples of trying to withstand it at the same time. So fighting it and withstanding it is a really valuable, powerful tool that we have available to us. What trees would you say in the UK can sequester most carbon dioxide? I think it's over different time periods. So we know that the fast growing trees, pines, etc., are really good at sequestering carbon rapidly. But actually, it's the diversity of a woodland structure that will sequester the most carbon for a given area of land. So having a mix of broadleaf woodland, particularly woodland that's been established, that can keep sequestering carbon for years and generations. In the trends for climate change, it talks about the forecasters, particularly in the summer, extreme temperature. And last year we saw the highest temperature ever recorded in the UK, in Cambridge. How do trees cope with that type of heat because it seems that the heat wave we saw last year and in fact the year before is going to be maybe even a one in five event come 20 years time. I think the the stress that it puts on the on the tree particularly depending on where the water table is I think that's going to be the the key factor that's going to be hitting our trees. One of the things that we have to do as an organisation that looks after woodlands across the UK is think about how do we buffer those trees from all the other external impacts that are going to hit them because it might be that if they are really small woods, the water table may disappear from the root systems of that woodland altogether. If they are larger woods, there's likely to be 
damper areas within the woodland cover, which means that they've got a better chance of survival. So looking forward, has your tree management on your, your planting regime changed through the years as we've learned more about the impacts of climate change on our micro level? First and foremost, I suppose we're looking at having an estate which is made up of larger woodlands because that size gives you resilience. We're trying to connect uh, our woodlands up with the wider landscape. So that also allows them to play a much better part of the tackling of the nature crisis, allowing organisms to move through the landscape really well. But also we're thinking about how do we create woodlands? So we do a lot of natural regeneration as well as planting, and that creates uh, a resilience for trees to adapt to climate change. We know that our native trees uh, have the genetic diversity within them to withstand the types of climatic changes that we are predicting over the next 80 to 100 years. So if we allow them to uh, naturally regenerate, that will really help them to be resilient into the future. Where are we at at the moment with certain invasive species and things like ash dieback? There's a huge amount of work to be done. I think the, uh, what we have in, uh, in the UK is not enough trees. There is only about 13% tree cover in comparison to Europe, where it's more in the region of 40 plus percent. And the government has recognised that trees are a powerful tool in the fight against climate emergency and the nature crisis and want to see 30,000 hectares more a year. But that's a huge undertaking. What we need to see is our existing trees protected. They are doing a job for us now in sequestering carbon and providing the kinds of habitats that nature needs. Things like tree pests and diseases, and you've mentioned uh, ash dieback, they threaten our existing tree stock to a huge degree. So there is an estimate that potentially 95% of our ash trees may be susceptible to ash dieback. Now, even if it's half that, that's a huge number of trees. That's millions of trees that we are going to potentially lose. So we have to look after those and we also have to replace and expand our woodlands in the UK. Can trees play a role in mitigating flooding? Absolutely. Trees play an important role in mitigating flooding. We've seen both in the UK and internationally. So the monsoon season in India, we've seen uh, trees being removed and soil being destabilised and that silt causing a real problem. And that happens here as well. In the uplands, we're seeing tree planting playing a real role in slowing the flow. And by doing so, we're protecting people's houses, people's livelihoods, as well as creating fantastic places for nature. Establishing woodlands, how can you make sure there's longevity? Because, you know, you see a lot of trees being planted along roadsides next to big stores just to offset perhaps what they've done to the landscape. Do they survive and how can you ensure that woodlands like that can survive? Trees and woodland establishment is all about care and maintenance. So you can't simply put them in the ground and walk away. And what we often see is some of those areas get planted and never see a human again until they go back and say they've all died. One of the things that the Woodland Trust does really well, I would say, is we work with local communities. We plant over 4.1 million trees last year with them and they give the care and maintenance, which means that they establish well and they grow into the trees that we all want to see. 
The other question, which is um, more relevant, I think, to the state of the climate report, is that are there any winners when it comes to the ecosystems associated with forests and woodlands in the UK relative to the hot and dry weather we've seen or the wet conditions that we've seen, particularly over the, this, this summer 2020? I think you find that the, the winners will be things like the butterfly species. They like a spring where it's not going to be damp and wet and they're able to get onto the wing and, uh, and be out enjoying the pollen and nectars, rich flowers that are there. Darren Moorcroft, thank you very much indeed. You can find full details of the State of the Climate Report on a link which we've placed in the podcast notes. That's all from Mostly Weather. I'm Claire Nazir, producer this week is Adrian Holloway.